Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Like Hearted. My name is Anna. And my name is Bracey, and we're two average gals chatting about what it means to grow. How are you growing this week? Um, okay, I've been saving this story for you. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've mentioned in previous episodes that I um, was going back to acupuncture, and it's a new acupuncturist that I am seeing. I really like her. She's super nice. Um, and I think just has like a different approach a little bit from the person that I had been going to, who I also loved when I first moved to Portland. And so I went this past week and when I went in, she was like talking to me about, you know, what had been going on, like how I'd been feeling, like all this stuff. And she asked if there was anything else that I wanted her to like work on outside of my like shoulder and my back and that type of stuff. And I was like, well, I don't know if acupuncture can do this or not, but I would love some like immunity booster. Well, we have a little visitor today, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) a little squeaker, a little squeaker. And so she asked me if there's anything else I wanted her to work on outside of my normal stuff. And I was like, yeah, maybe if acupuncture can do any like immunity booster things or anything like that, that would be great because last week there was one day when we had over a hundred kids absent oh my um, goodness. for my school and for uh, more context, only 370 kids go there. Wow. <laughs> so like it was crazy. Out. Yeah. Um, so there's so much sickness going around. So I was like, yeah, I would love immunity boost. That'd be great. And I'd had like a little bit of a cough anyway. And so I was like hoping that it was going to like, go away and not turn in, into anything bigger. And so anyway, so I lay down, she has me lay on my back, which normally I'm on my stomach and she, um, puts needles, you know, in my neck and my top of my head and then like down my arms and down my legs in just different spots than she normally does. And then she also uses tuning forks. Mm. Um, I know she's real woo woo. I love it. (laughs) And so she's like putting the tuning forks on like my chest and like on my abdomen. And then she did it on my feet. And that it's for those of you that don't know what tuning forks are. There's like these like metal ball things and you like rub them together and then they make sound and they also vibrate. And so I could feel like, you know, different parts of my body, like kind of coming alive. Like when she's putting them like in my abdomen, like I can feel it down my leg or like, you know, different places, not just where she's holding them. And so she does, does the tuning forks. And then she's like, okay, I, um, you have 20 minutes with the new, with the needles. And so I'll, I can come back in and check on you like halfway through, or you can just do your thing. And I was like, I'm fine. Like I can't feel any of the needles. So like, I'm all good. As soon as she closes the door, I immediately have the sensation that my body is spinning around. Wow. And, and not in like, I I didn't feel dizzy. Like it wasn't that. It really was just like from the neck down, I felt like my body was like spinning in circles. And so I immediately like opened my eyes because I was like, whoa, this is weird. Like what's going on? But I could, it was still happening even with my eyes open. And it reminded me of being like a little kid on those like little merry-go-rounds on mm-hmm. playgrounds where you like lay down and you have your friend like push you and like run around and make it go really fast. And yeah, so that's crazy. When I had my eyes open, I was going slower. Um, but then when I closed my eyes, I would, it would like speed up. But I was like, okay, 
I, this is obviously just something I'm like going to experience right now. Like I don't feel dizzy or anything. It's just like a really weird sensation. And so I closed my eyes and just kind of was like breathing through it. And then eventually like after what I assume is like, you know, anywhere from three to five minutes, it goes away. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, what is happening? It's so weird. And then for the rest of the time, I was just having like different parts of my body, like getting warm and then getting really cold. Wow. Um, and had like a few times where like something was pulsing a few times. And then, yeah, it was just, it was so, so weird. And after she comes back in and she's like, welcome back. Like, how are you doing? And I tell her about it and she's like, oh, wow. It sounds like you had a lot of stuff like moving through you. Because when I mentioned, um, the acupuncture being immunity boosting, she said like acupuncture can help, um, things move through your body quicker because like, Mm -hmm. you know, we touch so many things and we come into contact with all kinds of stuff. So acupuncture can help it move through quicker. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of movement (laughs) happening in your body. And I was like, um, yeah, definitely. And so after for like 30 minutes after when I went home, I felt very weird. But then when I woke up the next day, I felt like a million bucks. So I don't know what, I I mean, isn't it crazy that you can literally physically feel the energy moving through your body? Yes, it was so odd. And I was like, I've done acupuncture so many times. I've never had that feeling. Yeah. I mean, Um, I think it just depends on like the individual experience and maybe the practitioner too. Yeah. It was, it was really cool though. Yeah. I I mean, I would imagine, I know you haven't done Reiki, but I would imagine that like the the hot and cold thing is a similar feeling to what you felt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, and I feel like I'm... Yeah, I feel like Reiki would work well on me because I know like even when Seb has like done it on me for like one second, like I could feel heat like, you know, when he like held his hand like over my knee, I could like instantly feel heat mm-hmm. there. So I'm like, okay, I would definitely be a Reiki person. Well, and that go. that spinning thing that happens to me sometimes when I meditate. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Okay, glad I'm not alone. Yeah, no, <laughs> it is kind of trippy the first time you feel it, though. Yes. I was like, wait, am I dizzy? Like, am I about to throw up? Like, what's happening to me right now? But I was like, no, I'm not. It's just my head feels perfectly still, but my body feels like it is rotating around. It was so weird. Wow. Um, well, that's exciting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay. How have you been growing this week? Oh, you know, just trying to keep a human alive. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job. Yeah, she's currently asleep on top of me. So mm-hmm. she's, Looking she's as here. cute as ever. <laughs> yeah. We are currently working on her gaining weight, so we're eating a lot. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. taking a lot of time, but we're going to the doctor again this week, so we're getting there. She's growing into her clothes. We're going to get out of those okay. newborn diapers ASAP. <laughs> That's awesome. And we took her to Asheville. That was, I guess, pretty ambitious. Seven weeks. Yeah. She's seven weeks. And we took her to Asheville just to, well, A, go to the mountains, but B... Mm-hmm just see how it went with the travel and the baby and it went really well so can't complain about that that's so good yeah well and i know that then that just helps you probably feel more confident about taking her like wherever kind of like if she's gonna be down for Asheville, she can go somewhere else too yeah we're looking at possibly going to like mexico or something in february or march which Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna like hang my hat on that because i you know, who knows, but, um, yeah, maybe she'll be a little international travel baby. Oh my gosh. Wait, would she have to get a passport? I think so. Yeah. 
Oh my god, that would be adorable. I mean, that's part of the reason. <laughs> Honestly, if it doesn't happen, it's because we don't have time for the logistics. <laughs> so yeah, that's fair. We'll see. Oh my gosh, I would love her to have a passport, a little tiny baby passport. A to win. I hope it. I wish they would make it small too, and like yeah. <laughs> not the standard size, but like a couple inches smaller. Mm-hmm. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, I'm really excited about this episode. It's been um, probably at this point months since we recorded it, but it was yeah. one of my favorite conversations we've had in a while. So I hope everybody enjoys it. We read and reviewed Atlas of the Heart by Dr. Brene Brown. And this is probably the part where I should plug the store in Asheville where I found this awesome altar candle that says St. Brene Brown on it. <laughs> Uh, this it is amazing. It really is. And the store is called The Loft in Asheville. So if you need one for yourself, you can go look online and see if they have it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Happy listening. All right. So I'm really excited about today's episode because obviously we're both huge fans of Dr. Renee Brown and mm-hmm. her newest book, Atlas of the Heart, is really good. Yeah, I agree. I really, really, really enjoyed this one. Yeah, so Anna listened to it, and I read it, which I want to talk about. But also, Mm -hmm. I have enjoyed my experience of reading it because it reads a little bit like a coffee table book. Like, there's big pages with, like, takeaway quotes, which I love quotes, so, you know, that's Mm -hmm. great. And I will say, I read this a little bit in a hurry just to prepare for today's podcast, but I think it's one of those books that I will probably revisit multiple times. I completely agree. I felt that way. Like as I was listening to it, I was like, I really want to read this again. Like I already feel like this A has like a lot of re-readability. I don't know if that's a word, but it also, I like how the chapters, I feel like you could revisit them on their own. 100%. I think it's almost like a reference book. Like if you're Mm -hmm. struggling with a particular emotion, it would be really easy to to read that section and like, get some perspective. Yeah, I I completely agree. And listening to it was really fun. I definitely want to actually read it Mm -hmm. for my next my next uh, foray into this book. But what I liked about listening to it is a she reads it. So that's great. But she also would say stuff like, okay, this part isn't in the book, but I just want to tell you this. Or she would say, I'm going to reread that part because I think it's really important. And I know like if you're driving or cleaning or whatever you're doing, like, I just want you to pay attention to this part. And she would like reread some of the important quotes that I was like, oh, this is totally a part where I would probably be like, oh, let me read that again because that was like really impactful or whatever. So I liked that part too. Okay, well, maybe I need to listen to it now. <laughs> yeah, I think you would enjoy listening to it. Yeah, we need to do a reverse. Okay, we'll have to do that. Well, any other, like, overall takeaways from it? I mean, okay, well, I haven't read that many books by Dr. Brené. I've only, the only other one I've read is The Gifts of Imperfection. Actually, which, same. Okay, interesting. That's mm-hmm. kind of, that's kind of funny considering that, yeah, we both, like, really love her. I guess we both... She has so much content out there that is not her book. I also think that I wasn't a huge fan of hers until after her those books were written. So it wasn't like, mm-hmm. oh, this new book came out. I want to read it right now. So now I'm like, well, actually, after reading this book, she she has several sections where she does excerpt, excerpts from her other books. And now I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I definitely want to go back and reread that. Yeah, I agree. Did you have any like critiques about the book? I 
don't think so, actually. I think the only thing is that I wish that I had taken more time, and that was that's a critique on myself. So, <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, my I was telling my sister that I was reading this and that I was really enjoying it, and she was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Like I've heard mixed reviews. Oh, interesting. I know that just gave us such a shock to me. But she said the main critique that she had read was that it's kind of just like her explaining definitions of words. It a hundred percent is that. Which it is that <laughs> I know, but I loved it. <laughs> but like, that's the whole point of the book. And it's more than that. Like, it's not just like reading like a dictionary. Like there's so much more like explanation that goes into it. But I just thought that was like an interesting. That is funny. I will say, I don't think it is probably as much of like a self-help book maybe as maybe some of her other ones are, but I, I don't know. I think it is, but just in a, maybe a different way that's like not as expected. Well, for anybody who's listening who hasn't read it, basically the premise is that language is really important for mm-hmm. experiencing and processing emotions. So like the reason she is giving all of these definitions is so that we can get the definitions correct so that we're mm-hmm. using the words and the language properly when we're communicating our experience of emotions. Mm-hmm. That being said, I feel like this book, it requires you to do your own work. It's not like one of those self-help books where it's like, here is an, a a problem and like what you should do about it. Cause mm-hmm. there's just like way too much content in here for her to have done that. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I loved the, she was hitting so hard about the, how important language is. And like, there are so many emotional nuances that we don't recognize probably in day-to-day life. And I thought it was interesting that she talks about, you know, when they were collecting research on all this stuff that they would have people write down what emotions they knew and yeah. that the most, that most people wrote down three and that was mad, sad and glad, or like, you know, whatever, a variation of those, mm-hmm. which was so interesting. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's like the average person, like only naming three emotions. Like they only either, they only think they feel this, this or this when, you know, obviously there's like a giant wheel of emotions that we can all experience. But yeah, I just, I loved that aspect of it and that kind of like intro into like why it's so important to name your emotions appropriately and also just know the definitions yourself. Cause I learned so much about the emotions in this book and like kind of what are the slight differences between them. Yeah. A hundred percent. I also think it's important to point out that, or it was important that she pointed out that anger is often a cover emotion for other things. Like specifically anger is like almost always there's other stuff, but people are just so in it. I think that Mm -hmm. they can't get to the like more nuanced emotions that they're experiencing. Yes. That yeah. Anger is a secondary emotion and it's like whatever you might be portraying anger, but there's something, there's probably multiple things like underneath that, but people are much more comfortable in anger. Yeah, and she talks a little bit about how we're almost never feeling just one thing at a time, mm-hmm. which I had not thought a lot about, but makes total sense. Yeah. Okay, well, that kind of leads us to the first discussion question, and you can find these questions on Brene's website, and we're just going to go through them as as our little book club. So 
The first one is, did any of the explanations of specific emotions or experiences surprise you? If yes, what was surprising? I feel like a lot of them surprised me, honestly. I feel like the ones that I found most surprising or I guess maybe enlightening were the sections on disappointment, invisibility, and then the places we go when we feel wronged was like a section that I feel like I learned a lot, which those mm-hmm. emotions are anger, contempt, disgust, dehumanization, hate, and self-righteousness. Okay. Well, what is kind of funny is that in my notes that I had written down, I didn't write down any of those. So I'm, I want to hear more about why you felt those so noteworthy. Okay. I knew this was going to happen because I was thinking, I actually took a huge amount of notes because my memory is terrible, but also like with having the physical book, I was, I kept being like, oh, I want to read this quote or like whatever. So I was (laughs) making all these notes and I kept thinking like, I feel like I have a note on here for every single emotion, except for (laughs) probably the five that I don't are going to be the ones that Anna points out. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. Um, so with disappointment, I feel like that's an emotion that I experience like pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And it, first of all, is interwoven with regret, which was very surprising to me because I feel like regret is not something that I experience very often. I so was thinking like, about you during that part because she and her talking about regret. And I was like, oh, I feel like that is yeah something that Bracey is yeah, doesn't experience a lot or, you know, you say like, oh, I don't really live with regrets. And so I was thinking about you during that part. Yeah. So I don't even know. I still don't really know how I feel about that because I feel like to be regretful, you have to want to, to have done something differently. And generally (laughs) I feel like I couldn't have known to do something differently without that experience first. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't regret it because I learned. Um, sure. And sure, I would do do it differently next time. But like, to me, that's not regret. Anyways. Yeah. Um, the other thing that disappointment has to do with is expectations, which I feel like is definitely somewhere I've been learning over probably the last 10 years, like setting myself up for success instead of like having expectations that are going to lead to disappointment. So she mm-hmm. talks about stealth expectations and how if you don't look at what you're expecting out of a certain situation that basically sets you up for failure. Mm -hmm. I did like the part that where she talks about how her and Steve, who's her husband do like reality checks with each other Mm -hmm. or expectation checks or whatever she calls it. And I was like, Oh, that's so smart. Like that's such a good way to like avoid either arguments or yeah, disappointment or whatever. Like I, I definitely want to start doing that. Yeah. Really helpful too. And the other thing that she talked about, which I thought was really interesting is the idea of, she calls it painting done Mm -hmm. where in her work, she'll like hand off a project to somebody. And basically she, at that point she has to communicate like what she expects to be finished when the other person is done with it. Mm -hmm. And if she doesn't do that, they ask her to paint done so that, they know what she's expecting. And I thought that was hilarious because in the software industry, there's a concept called acceptance criteria, which is exactly the same thing. It's basically that when you're asking for a piece of code to be written, there's like minimum requirements that it has to meet. And until somebody reviews the functionality and makes sure that it meets those criteria, it's not actually finished. 
Like, you can't consider mm. it finished until somebody is like, yes, this hits all the marks. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So, same thing. Just call something different. Yeah. Right. And the other thing was invisibility. And this one was really tough for me to read because I realized that this is, like, the one thing that I really felt as a child in school, mm. like, with friends. Like, this is my big friendship, like, wound. And Mm -hmm. had never had words for it until I read that section. So that was like hard. Okay. I'm going to be honest. I don't, I don't really remember that section. So will you, yeah, will you tell us a little more about it? Sure. Um, One of the quotes that I wrote down was invisibility may manifest as being passed over for promotions or recognition, not being seen as a viable friend, romantic partner, or teammate, or being passively excluded from social situations. So I feel like for me, it was basically that like as a kid with friends, it was never that I was outright excluded, but it was like I felt like I was almost just just forgettable enough that I was never really included either. Mm. Um, So like I with invitations, I felt like sometimes if I got invited, it was like a little bit of a tag along or like a pity invite. Or if I wasn't included, I was not that surprised. That's really sad. I mean, I guess so. But I don't know. I never had words for it. And now I'm like, well, this is kind of nice because I get it now. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like that is something that kind of like bleeds over into like how you approach friendship now or anything like that? I definitely think it probably is still a factor. I think it's a lot better than it used to be. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing and the other thing about invisibility, this section is very related to loneliness and so I feel like my, I remember my freshman year of college, I was having a hard time, which I think now statistically we know that like one of the hardest transitions or like periods of a person's life is like the first year that they're in college, if they go to yeah. college. So I felt very, I think, disconnected in general and kind of lonely. But I also think that the invisibility thing kind of played into that and Unfortunately, one of the things that I learned here is that unchecked loneliness fuels continued loneliness because it makes us afraid to like reach out because we're afraid of being rejected, I think. Yeah. Um, So that was something that I definitely experienced then. And just like in general, I think for all of my life and friendships, I've never been, which we've talked about this, I feel somewhat insecure still in female relationships, but I've never been like somebody's number one friend. Hmm. Like you don't feel like you've ever had a best friend? It's not that I haven't had a best friend because, like, you know, you hear that thing about best friend is a tier, not a person, which I yeah. I believe. I think that's yeah. true. Same. It's just that I've never been somebody's first chair, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. outside of romantic relationships, I've never been the first person that somebody's going to go to for something. So, like, I feel like most people are, like, when you think of your friends, I think I feel like most people have, like, that one person that they're always, like, you know, very connected to. Sure. I've just never had that. That's really interesting. But I also know other people that have had that like same experience that you're saying. They're like, oh yeah, I've just never, it just hasn't ever happened. Yeah. I feel like it's not that I don't have really good friends and best friends because I do. Mm-hmm. It's just that I'm not always that best friends first person. Yeah. Interesting. One other really crazy thing that I learned about loneliness here is that Okay. Living with air pollution increases your odds of dying early by 5%, living with obesity, 20%, excessive drinking, 30%, and living with loneliness, it increases our odds of dying early by 45%. Mm. That's crazy. 
Yeah, that's an insane statistic. So I'm glad that like loneliness is not a, a real big issue for me anymore. But that's scary, right? It's really scary. And I feel like in the book in that section, doesn't she talk about how people like that's such an uncomfortable thing to say like, oh, I'm lonely. Yeah, like we like take so- it as a social knock that you're lonely like you're socially defective if you're lonely a hundred percent that it's like something like personally wrong with you to be lonely even though we've all experienced that feeling of loneliness before whether you are you know spending a lot of time by yourself and that's what is like perpetuating the loneliness like you know with pandemic and all that i'm sure like the loneliness increased in like you know tenfold or but you can also experience loneliness like in a group like it doesn't necessarily depend on being with people or not. Yeah. And like I said earlier, like when we're isolated, we're actually we're we end up being more lonely, but we distance ourselves in an effort to protect ourselves too. So like instead mm-hmm. of putting ourselves out there and trying to cultivate more connection with people, it's like it's hard to do that because you're afraid that you'll just end up Completely. lonelier. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure that, like, I again, I don't feel lonely anymore, but I'm sure that that, like, invisibility wound from my childhood is probably showing up in a lot of places that I'm not, like, paying attention yeah. to. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's definitely something to explore more. Yeah. And then the last section that I mentioned, the places we go when we feel wronged, that one was very interesting because I feel like I had a lot of takeaways about the way that I think about politics specifically and Mm. people who believe different things than me and how Mm -hmm. I am thinking about those types of people and like othering them and doing things that are discouraging connection and really can be very harmful. So I think that's definitely a section I'm going to have to revisit. Yeah, I enjoyed that section as well. And I feel like the part that really stood out to me was when she talks about how, you know, our political climate right now is like more divided than it's ever been. And that both sides like look at the other group as a other, I just use the word like, and like you just said, but also that they are coming from a place of like hate. Mm-hmm. And we I, both believe that about each other. Right. And I have never thought twice about that. Yeah. 100%. Until this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This definitely, this is a book of lessons for sure. Yeah. All right. What about you? What were the parts that were interesting or noteworthy for you? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the three that I really enjoyed was jealousy versus envy. Mm-hmm the cognitive dissonance part and then specifically around like vulnerability and then comparison. Those were the three that I loved. I definitely thought about you in the comparison section. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, Well, I'll start there then. The comparison section. So she talks about how we are like neurobiologically wired to compare. It's like an evolutionary thing um, and a survival thing. And I think that just, I don't know, it made me feel better about it that like, we literally can't help this. And so I think that it takes like a little, it just like relieves some of the like, the negative thoughts that I have about myself when I'm comparing. Now I can be like, oh, okay, I'm comparing. I can't help that I'm comparing. But she talks about how you can, you can recognize that you're comparing and then you can make a choice on what you do with that information. 
But I liked that it just kind of like, at least for me personally, like it kind of like de-villainized myself or something like when I'm comparing and I get mad at myself for comparing, it's like, oh no, I literally can't help it. I can, I can help what I do after the comparison, but I, I can't really do anything about the fact that this is happening because we are not meant to do it, but we, yeah, it's just, we're wired that way. I also really like the part of the comparison section where she talks about the grass is um, always greener on the other side and how Mm -hmm. the grass is literally greener on the other side because (laughs) of like the distance away and like the angle that you're looking at the grass. Like it literally (laughs) looks greener when you're farther away. Yes. Yeah. That, (laughs) yeah, that I just really enjoyed that section. And then the cognitive dissonance piece, I just really connected to. And so cognitive dissonance is the discomfort that we feel when we have like conflicting beliefs or conflicting values. Um, and she talks about how we really admire vulnerability in other people and that, you know, it fosters connection and like all these great things. But then for some people, myself, I felt very seen in this part, but that you're like repelled by your own vulnerability. And I was like, gosh, that's something I really experience a lot. Like with my friends sometimes, like I love when they're being vulnerable with me. And then a lot of times after I've been vulnerable, I experience like a lot of like negative feelings uh, about that. And I'm like, Oh, I just wish I like hadn't talked so much. Or I wish I hadn't said all of that stuff. I'm like grossed out by <laughs> my being vulnerable. Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty universal experience. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I struggle quite that much with vulnerability, but it's not easy. Like it doesn't feel good. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, again, I do. I love it when people are vulnerable with me because to me, that's like, you know, depth and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the other one that I loved was jealousy versus envy because we are using these words incorrectly. And yeah. I just loved that. So jealousy is like, you know, it's such an easy word to say. We say it all the time, like, oh, I'm so jealous. And she calls out how like people use the term jelly to describe being jealous. And it's like, oh, it's so cute and funny and like whatever. But jealousy typically involves three people. While envy involves two. So jealousy is like, oh, if you're, if one of your friends is like hanging out with another friend or something, like you might feel jealous that you aren't involved in that or something like that. And envy is when you want something that somebody else has. And then she talks and kind of breaks it up that there's two types of envy, like regular envy, I guess, where you're just like, Oh, they're having that experience or they're, you know, eating at that restaurant or whatever. I, I'm envious of that. I want that, but I'm okay that they're having that experience. Or there's malicious envy where you're like, I want what they have and they don't deserve to have it, mm-hmm. which like I have a hundred percent felt many times in my life, but like it feels so much more serious or something to be like, Oh, I'm envious of you. Like it feels, it's such a darker word, I feel like, than jealousy. Yeah. Um, that's definitely it's, perception. Yeah. But it is definitely like probably more accurately describes what I feel more often than feeling jealous. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned a long time ago that 
when you're feeling envious of somebody or something, that it's a really good indicator of like what it is that you want. So I think Mm. a long time ago, I reframed envy as like, here is this nice thing that helps me identify what it is that I want or like Mm -hmm. feel like I'm missing. But I also feel like when I was reading about the jealousy portion, I was thinking like, oh, this is a feeling that I think is much less likely to happen in a secure attachment relationship. Like, Mm. the the more secure you are in the relationship, the less likely you are to be jealous. That's a really interesting point. And I love the callback to attachment. (laughs) You know, I do. All right. Discussion question number two is, did you come across any emotion or experience and think, that's what that feeling is called? Or I know that experience. Yes, I absolutely did. Actually, really just generally enjoyed the chapter on the places we go when things are good or whatever, like the joy and Mm -hmm. happiness one. Mm -hmm. But I had never thought about tranquility. And when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, I think that's like one of my default states, which is good, I think. Yes. Um, But the book says tranquility is associated with the absence of demand and a no pressure to do anything. So tranquil environments are basically like rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was one that I was like, oh, I've never really thought about it, but I feel like I experience that often. I, yeah, I'm going to retweet this one because I completely agree. Whenever I was like cleaning, we just moved. And so I was cleaning of the fridge of our own place while I was listening to this and she starts talking about tranquility and I was like, oh. This is the, this is the thing that I crave. Like, this is, this is my favorite state. I love this so much. It's like, I don't have it all the time, but it's something I either crave or when I do have it, I relish it. I feel like tranquility is almost like what you're trying to schedule into your time Mm -hmm. more often because like, I feel like you, because of your scheduling, you Mm -hmm. tend to like be busy a lot. And so you're missing that piece. But I feel like tranquility is almost like because I'm not a really busy person, like it's just it's a lot easier for me to like reach that place. Yeah. And it was fun because I was like, oh, this is not how I would ever I would never name this train tranquility. I would. Yeah. I when I think about the word tranquility, I only think about a spa. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, I'm like, Very oh, yeah, you just. Yes. Like that's all. That's what I think about. Like water features, robes you know, quiet, meditative music. So this was a really fun one to, for me, because I was like, God, now I have this in my like vocabulary in a different way, which is exciting. Yep. Big fan. All right. Are there any behaviors that you might work towards changing because of something you learned in the book? hundred percent. And this one kind of will go with our next question, which is about the empathy misses, because this is something that a, I am really interested in, it's something I feel comfortable with in myself. Like I feel like I'm a pretty empathetic person and it's something that I use in my job all the time. And there were so many empathy misses that she, she goes through eight of them. And there were like four, I think that I starred as being things that I do all the time. Wow. And I was like, Oh, I'm not even realizing that I am putting up like a wall to connection or a wall to being empathetic without even realizing it. Okay. So I'll just list the empathy misses here so we can talk about all of it. Uh, The first one is sympathy versus empathy. I feel sorry for you. 
Mm-hmm. Judgment. You should feel shame. Disappointment. You let me down. Discharging discomfort with blame. This feels terrible. Who can we blame? You. Minimize avoid. Let's make this go away. Comparing, competing. If you think that's bad. Speaking truth to power. Don't upset people or make them uncomfortable. And advice giving, problem solving. I can fix this and I can fix you. Oh, man. This is, I love this section a lot. I, this was the part that I was like, I'm going to come back to this chapter so many times. Mm-hmm. And this was in chapter seven, places we go with others just for reference. And so the, there are actually only three that I was like, oh, I feel like I do this a lot. And so one was, who can we blame? Okay. I feel like this is something that I do with my friends or like siblings or whatever. When people are sharing a story, I'm, you know, her kind of, example is like, who did that to you? Like, Oh, they suck. Like I hate that person or whatever, like connecting over blaming somebody else for whatever has happened. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in my head, it's like, Oh, I'm on your side. Like, Oh, I'm on your team. Like I'm, I, I'm so mad at whoever made you feel this way Yeah. instead of just being in their feelings with them or connecting to whatever emotion that they're expressing. And then the other one that I definitely do with my friends is like the one where you're like pushing away and minimizing, not intentionally, but being like, oh, you're awesome. Like everybody loves you. Like I'm sure it wasn't as bad as you think Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to like trying to make them feel better. And then the other one is like advice giving that I maybe don't do quite as much with my friends, probably definitely some, but definitely with the students that I work with when they come in and they're upset about something and then I'm like, okay, I like listen. And then I'm like, okay, well like, what are we going to do next? And feeling like I need to fix it for them or I need to give them some suggestions on how they could fix it or whatever. Like I feel like it's hard for me to let them walk out of my office without something or I'm like, Oh, what was this even helpful if I'm not helping you solve your problem? Yeah. that This is definitely the one that I fall into most often. Um, I think it's hard too because I feel like it's second nature to be like, oh, here's an issue and I know how to solve it. So like, let mm-hmm. me help you solve it. Yes. But like, sometimes that's not helpful. Totally. And I don't know. I was thinking about it some and I was like, well, is this always an empathy miss? Like, I don't think are, so. Are there, yeah. Are, is there room for saying like, hey, are you open to suggestions? Like, or is, or is even implying that, is that the, is that an empathy miss? I don't know. I felt kind of conflicted in this part, but I really enjoyed learning about it. I don't know. I feel like my stance on it is that as long as you're leaving room for the feelings first, like let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about your feelings first. Mm-hmm. And maybe once you're out of such an emotional state, we can actually problem solve together. But yeah. I do feel like it is almost up to the person who's having the feelings. Totally. Another part in this section that I really liked just was like the definition of empathy. Cause I feel like for such a long time, like we've just been like, it's walking in someone else's shoes. And that's like a really simple one line of a way to explain what empathy is. But she, you know, talks about how that's not really empathy. It's actually like listening to somebody explain what it's like to walk in their shoes and believing them. And then talks about how you don't have to have had the exact same experience as somebody else to connect with them. You just have to have experienced that same emotion. And so you can 
connect to the loneliness. You can connect to the frustration. You can connect to their anger, like whatever, because you've had those feelings before, but and it doesn't matter if you haven't had the exact same experience that they're having. So I was like, oh, this is a great like reframe for me in the way that I can talk to kids specifically like about empathy and explaining it in a more accurate way. Also really like that she talked about the difference between cognitive empathy and effective empathy. Mm-hmm. So cognitive empathy is perspective taking and the ability to recognize and understand another person's emotions. And effective empathy is experience sharing is one uh, one's own emotional attunement with another person's experience. And basically effective empathy is the part of the empathy that I struggle with because it's basically Mm. taking on the feelings for Mm. the person Mm -hmm. or with the person. Yeah. And like, that's draining. It's it's not, it's not helpful and it's draining to me. So I feel like this is when we had our like highly sensitive person and empath episode. I feel like this Mm -hmm. is kind of what I was talking about where I feel like you can be empathetic and not take on other people's emotions, but I hadn't learned to do it yet, which I feel like I'm still learning and it will probably be a lifelong lesson, but it was really For nice sure. to see it written out that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about this book that just like, I think for both of us, like helped us feel seen in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you have any like core wound emotional issues, it's probably outlined here. Yeah. And defined correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next discussion question is, have you started paying attention to the difference between stress and overwhelm? If so, has it helped? Yes. I feel like this is one that I heard her talk about on a podcast and was immediately like, oh, that is something that's really helpful in like a lot of situations. Uh So she talks about working in a restaurant and being in the weeds versus being blown and So being stressed is being in the weeds and being overwhelmed is being blown. So in the weeds is like, I'm, you know, I've got a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. I'm juggling all these things. And being Mm -hmm. overwhelmed is like, I am juggling all these things and I literally can't process anything else. Like I am at my max capacity. Mm -hmm. And so I think we say overwhelmed a lot when we actually really mean stressed yeah. And when you're overwhelmed, she talks about when you're overwhelmed, you basically have to stop. Like the only way to fix overwhelm is to just stop and rest. Yep. And I think that m- many people don't know that, that, that we're just trying to like work ourselves out of overwhelm and that's mm-hmm. not possible. Yeah. This one I love too, because I... I feel like in this section, and maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but she talks about in like arguments and whatever, like sometimes she gets to a place where it's like, okay, we just have to take a break. Mm -hmm. And she's never, she's never taken a break from a conflict or whatever and regretted it. And this is something that I used to really not like about myself is that I would need breaks. Mm -hmm. Like I would be like, oh, I just want to be one of those people who can like talk it out in the moment. Like, that's what I really wanted. And I, and I saw that skill as being like superior. And so I think this was like a helpful explanation of like, oh, when you're overwhelmed, like you literally have to take a break. Like you're not going to get anywhere. And so that was, that was nice. This book just helped me feel better, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing about being overwhelmed is it's not necessarily like 
like you said, it's not a defect. It's literally that your nervous system can't handle it. Like it cannot Mm -hmm. process what's happening. And so there's nothing you can do besides stop. Yeah. And yeah. And I agree with what you said about it's, we often use overwhelmed in place of stress. And so I'm like, Oh, that's a, I feel like that feels like a change that I can make that. And I can communicate more effectively, like what I'm actually feeling to people. Right. Well, and too, I feel like now knowing that that stress level is bordering on overwhelm, like there's there's a line. I feel like mm-hmm. now I can identify when I'm like approaching the line too. Mm-hmm. So, and that's another place where, you know, my skill of being like, hey, I'm not emotionally available or mentally available for this conversation. Can we have it in two hours? That's like right. step number one to getting stuff off my plate so I don't get into overwhelm. Yeah, absolutely. You can you can see it on the horizon and you're like, okay, I'm going to do some things so for myself that then I won't get there. Yeah. I feel like for me, staying out of overwhelm and like managing stress is often like focusing on one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was great. Also, right after this section was the anxiety section, which was one of my favorites. And I think part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much is because she talks about state versus trait. Do you remember that part? Yes, I do. I think. Okay. So a trait is considered to be something that is part of an individual's personality and therefore a long-term characteristic of an individual that shows through behavior, actions, and feelings. It's seen as being a characteristic feature or quality of an individual. For example, someone who says, I am a confident person or I am just an anxious person is stating these attributes are a part of who they are. Mm. A state, on the other hand, is a temporary condition that they are experiencing for a short period of time. After the state is passed, they will return to another condition. For example, someone who says, I'm feeling quite confident about this interview or I feel nervous about doing this is describing states. And I feel like that is such an important part of the language of anxiety, like a hugely Mm -hmm. important part of the language of anxiety. A hundred percent. It really creates like a more person centered language that is like something that's, you know, kind of been, been happening in the last like few years. But I feel like this like takes it even a step further in a way that I've never thought about. Well, I just remember when you and I talked about, I think it must have been on, on the anxiety episode. And I asked you, do you feel like you could ever be like not an anxious person? Like, do you feel like Mm -hmm. there's a place where you can get to where you're not anxious anymore? And you said no. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, I can't even imagine it. Yeah. But that's crazy to me. Like, so that means that you're, you're basically saying that your anxiety is a trait instead of a state. Yes. Um, Which I think it'll be helpful for me to like, make that shift in my brain of like, anxiety is not a part of me. Like that's not, I mean, it is, but it's not a part of me in the way that mm, sarcasm is a part of me or something like that. Like, it's not like a, it it is something separate from my being that is something that I experience versus what I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, is like to get to switch from that trait to state, it's like, how do we increase our capacity to handle uncertainty because that was another Mm -hmm. part of the anxiety piece that I really resonated with is that like, I feel like tolerance for uncertainty is an important part of the equation too. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved that she, she included a, a picture of an Instagram post from Elizabeth Gilbert 
that says, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you ever had was anxiety. Yes. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's anxiety. That's it. I should make that my phone background. <laughs> this is a daily constant reminder. I mean, well, it's it, tough. It is. It, I feel like this is something that you are pretty good at, like a, the your tolerance for uncertainty. Like, I feel like you're really good at just kind of like being like, yeah, you know what? Things are going to happen. I can't control most things. So... But I feel like this is like I've developed that. It's not that yeah. I like, like it doesn't it doesn't come naturally to me, I guess. hundred percent. You've worked for it. Yeah. Which is why I think I'm on my soapbox about it, because I'm like, it is possible. You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean like a 10 step program or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, OK, well, uh, one of the other things that you mentioned in here was sarcasm. And I want to I know, as soon as I, that because that was another interesting part of this book. She talks a little bit about sarcasm. I know as soon as I used that as my example, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Read us the definition of sarcasm per Dr. Brené. Okay. So it says, irony and sarcasm are forms of communication in which the literal meaning of both words is different, often opposite from the intended message. In both irony and sarcasm, there may be an element of criticism and humor. However, sarcasm is a particular type of irony in which the underlying message is normally meant to ridicule, tease, or criticize. Ooh. Yeah. I was like, ooh, that really, I, like, I'm not a sarcastic person, but I feel like if I was, that would hurt. Yeah. Um, I think I intentionally, like, ignored this section. I was like, mm. I, as after she read the definition, I was like, I'm just going to, like, zone out for a minute. <laughs> I need to dissociate for a second because I'm not mentally prepared. Yeah, I'm not mentally prepared to take this in. Uh, yeah, this part is really tricky. And I mean, I think it's true. Like, I my, I feel like my whole family is pretty sarcastic. And I talked about this on a previous episode. I think maybe our boundaries episode where sometimes that line is crossed. Where, like, it's inten- it might be intended to be funny, but it actually... Because it is an insult. It is a critique. But it's it's meant to be more lighthearted than that. But sometimes it doesn't feel... It feels too personal. But I've definitely gotten myself into trouble, like making a what I deem a quick-witted, hilarious, sarcastic comment that makes me laugh, and then I end up like hurting somebody's feelings, or have had the opposite experience where somebody hurts my feelings. Even if I know they're being sarcastic, I, I can 100% be like, "Well, I don't care. It hurt my feelings," which is actually um, very valid. And I feel like my takeaway from this section was that it's not that sarcasm is always bad it's just that often like very mm-hmm. often it's dangerous because it can be bad and you're not communicating in a very clear and honest way like yes. you're you're trying to communicate something that it's actually important but you're doing it with humor and it's like often not received well mm-hmm. 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 so <laughs> I'm, one of my the only note that i wrote down related to sarcasm was generally seen as an elevated form of humor, but really ambiguous and precarious if used the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, that's a great note. This is definitely something that I think I'm going to have to think about a little bit more and use more like sparingly. Um, I did like though that she, the last, um, the last thing she wrote on sarcasm, which I feel like is very, very helpful for people who are sarcastic and are like looking to maybe examine that a little bit. She said, I think that's the biggest watch out for irony and sarcasm. 
Are you dressing something up in humor that actually requires clarity and honesty? So that's like your, an easy way to like check whether you should be sarcastic in that situation. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) I, I can't wait for my sisters to read this book and get their take on that section. (laughs) Okay. Our last discussion question is since reading the book, have you had any experiences where you thought, wow, I know what that is now or wait, I know what's happening and why? Well, as mentioned, I literally just finished it. So no, Um, I do think that there were many places in the book, though, that especially in my romantic relationship, I feel like I have a better understanding of a feeling that Seb has that I don't typically have. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that actually is very helpful for me to like, be able to empathize with him even more than I, I do now, because especially with... Oh, one really fun thing about this is I don't even think we mentioned this, but Atlas of the Heart is also they developed a TV show like on HBO Max. It's a four part series. And while Seb and I were watching it a while back, I real like we were talking and I had absolutely no idea that resentment was like a feeling that he feels pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. I like learned that in the middle of the TV show. So I was like, okay, this is a place where I can definitely like meet you a little closer to halfway because it's not even something I knew you were experiencing. Yeah. Well, and I think we talked about this offline a little bit because I also experienced resentment and we um, were kind of, we were kind of talking about it being maybe related to the oneness in the Enneagram world. Yeah. And I believe Brene is a one. So. Oh my God. What? Yeah, I think so. Is she a one wing too? Probably. Uh, probably. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm like, I don't, I hope, I hope I'm not wrong, but I think so. Um, (gasps) yeah. And I can definitely see a possible correlation between resentment. I also think that maybe the part of that is because of the perfectionism piece. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like Enneagram ones tend to be perfectionists and then maybe that perfectionism breeds resentment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I just, yeah. The more that we talk about this, the more I'm like, wow, there's so much to explore in this book and like about ourselves and our loved ones. It's really interesting. Yeah. 100%. I think for for me, I I agree. I'm like, I literally just finished it yesterday. So I don't think there were necessarily, I haven't had the experience yet, but I feel very confident that I will because I definitely have had in, in listening to it. I'm like, Oh, that's what that is. Or like, Oh, I, I understand that experience that I had better and maybe through a different lens. And so I, I'm, confident that it will happen in the future. Yeah. The other thing that I feel like I will probably take away from this book is the, which I guess you didn't see this, but the last chapter is about, it basically like pulls together all the emotions and outlines three skill sets for cultivating meaningful connection. Mm -hmm. And she has like a really nicely designed chart in here, but the first skill set for cultivating meaningful connection is developing ground and confidence. The second one is the courage to walk alongside. And the third is practicing story stewardship. And, oh, one thing we didn't talk about was near enemies and far enemies, um, mm-hmm. which is fascinating and very helpful, I think, to know about. But the concept of a near enemy is that it is similar to, like, your intended 
state or feeling, but it's actually detrimental to connection. So like if you're looking at love, I think the far enemy of love would be something like hate or disinterest. Mm -hmm. But the near enemy of love is attachment. Mm. I read that Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my goodness, that is so fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) And just so just because we love attachment, I'm going to read this. Um, It comes from Jack Cornfield. He writes... The near enemy of love is attachment. Attachment masquerades as love. It says, I will love this person because I need something from them. Or I will love you if you love me back. I love you, but only if you will be the way I want. This isn't the fullness of love. Instead, there's attachment. There's clinging and fear. True love allows, honors, and appreciates attachment, grasps, demands, needs, and aims to possess. Mm. Yeah, this whole the whole concept of like near and far enemies and all of that stuff is so fascinating i remember when she was reading it i was like i need a chart of this i would love to have a really beautiful chart i bet someone has made one of all of these honestly i could see that this being a concept for her next book just Mm -hmm. exploring near enemies of like emotions because i want to know yeah again it's just like you i want to know all of them it's really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Well, lastly, how many stars would you give this book and would you recommend it to people? I mean, I feel like I'm going to give it like 4.5. I don't know. I don't rate books that often, but I feel like it was really helpful. And again, I would use it as a reference book. So I would recommend it to anybody who is interested in these types of things. Yeah. I'm going to say the exact same thing. I'd say 4.5. That's my number one complaint on Goodreads is that they don't do half stars. That's lame. It's, it's so annoying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's it for another podcast episode, I guess. Uh, air my grievances with Goodreads. But yeah, I would absolutely recommend this book. I think, I honestly think this would be a great book for anybody to read. Even if you're not super interested in this stuff, I feel like it's language is so important and understanding your emotions is such a valuable skill that yeah, I feel like this is a great one for anybody. I agree. I just think there's probably a lot of people out there that don't care enough about self-awareness I mean, yeah, that's, to actually that's do it. That's very true. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel like a lot of self-help books would be really helpful to people who don't actually want to read them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, okay. Well, if you are somebody who is interested in this stuff and read this book along with us, we would love to hear from you. Your favorite parts, if you want to answer these questions. We want it all. So you can email us at lightheartedpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow along on Instagram at lightheartedpod. Talk to you soon. Bye.